Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sisters, please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Please do give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it, is, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them. And departed. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Let's ask now for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Oh, Father, how we do ask that you would, Lord, that you would humble our hearts before you. We know that it does take humility to receive the word of God. We have seen that in so many passages here. We've seen how the Canaanite woman had so much humility, and yet the Pharisees and Sadducees have so little. Uh, Lord, we do pray in this way that you would, Lord, that you would soften hearts in order to be able to receive your word. For, Lord, we do know that our hearts are naturally hard, if it not be for your grace to change them. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, as we think about our own conversion, that it is you who, who softened our hearts and we see, even as we think of remaining hardness, O oh Lord, that it is you who must continually soften us more and more that we might receive the word of God. Uh, help us, we do pray. We, we do ask that you would in this way grant us the ears uh, to hear your word and that we would simply receive the testimony that has been given to us concerning your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, O oh Lord, do grant us this grace for the sake of the glory of your name. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of the famous lines in the book of Ecclesiastes that is said over and over again is that there is uh, nothing new under the sun. So the author of Ecclesiastes will say, you know, that all things are vanity and yet also that there is nothing new under the sun. And the point of this line is to say that there is continuity with the things of the past such that the main elements of what we see at various other points in history that it actually carries over into today, that there are, there are some things that are, are very much like the sorts of uh, unbelief or belief that we see at other ages. And one of the implications of this is that it is the reason why the Bible remains relevant for all times, uh, because the Bible always addresses uh, things that we see today. So as uh, the Bible uh, addresses you know, Israelites 3,000 years ago, uh, as we think of when Ecclesiastes was written, we recognize that actually uh, people haven't changed that much, and therefore the Bible remains relevant. And this is um, an answer to the objection that sometimes people give, you know, why would you preach on the Bible? Uh, why, why would you be so focused on this thing that was written 2,000 years ago or even longer when it comes to the Old Testament? Why would you be so focused on that? What, what advantage can that have for my life? And the answer is, 
Well, much in every way because the Bible is the word of God given to people in a situation where there is actually nothing new under the sun. And so every situation that has occurred today has actually occurred in the past and uh, in God's good pleasure and in his wisdom, he has given us the scriptures uh, to help us to understand what is happening today with wisdom. We, we can actually have wisdom about what has happened uh, from the scriptures. And this applies to what is happening here as well. There have always been many who have not believed in the Bible, who have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, and often what comes with those who take that position is a demand for a sign. Now, that demand for a sign is actually a very common objection that has always been made uh, against those who, who believe in the scriptures. And here we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is facing uh, the, the exact same uh, sort of thing. The, the idea is, again, that there's nothing new under the sun. The, the, this sort of um, antagonistic skepticism uh, that often comes with, uh, with a certain kind of, I should say, a certain kind of request for a sign, that that sort of antagonistic unbelief is not something that is new. It has, in fact, always been the case. And the way this typically works is something, you know, someone will say, well, you know, if God were to only to show me incontrovertible evidence that he exists, then I would believe him. Uh, this is the thing that is often said, and the challenge is laid out and by the unbeliever, and he thinks that he is safe in his uh, objection. Uh, the problem is that there is nothing new under the sun, and uh, as the unbeliever demands for a sign today, we recognize that uh, Christ has given an answer for uh, how we ought to respond and, and how even he responds to such a demand. And what we see here with regard to the demand for a sign is that though there is often an attempt by the, I'm going to call this, this person the antagonistic skeptic, there is this, this, this desire of the antagonistic skeptic to be, to show himself to be objective and to be a lover of truth that actually Actually, very often in the demand for a sign, there is a revelation of ungodliness. It is actually not a godly thing. It is actually an, an immoral thing to ask for a sign in this way. And uh, further, uh, then if you were to ask, you know, why is this the case? The answer is because many signs have been given. Many things have been given that make it that, so, such that every person is in fact without excuse, that, that God has actually revealed enough to us such that if you were to say, well, I need even more, what that is revealing is a heart that's unwilling to receive the things that God has given. And that is always a disposition of the skeptic. He's unwilling generally to receive the things that have, that have been given. And he withholds faith until uh, some sort of better proof can come. The problem is that very often there is no such proof that exists. Very often the, the skeptic will not admit any sort of proof and therefore he remains in his position and even further we see that God will not submit to such demands and that he will refrain from giving signs in in response to this sort of demand for a sign now we have seen in this section of, my, of, of the book of Matthew, there have been various sorts of responses to, to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We have seen that some have not believed. We've seen that the crowds have been generally impressed or generally favorable toward the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't fully understand uh, who he is. And yet we see also in this section that the Pharisees and Sadducees outrightly oppose Christ. They are against 
uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we've seen this particularly with the Pharisees, but now we see especially the Sadducees coming in uh, as well. And you remember that the whole point of all of these different views on who the Lord Jesus Christ is is to uh, is to uh, is that you need to understand who He is yourself. Uh, there are so few who understand the true nature of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the question is, is in such a context, which is the context that was happening in, the, in uh, Matthew, the context of Matthew's gospel, but also is the context today, when there are so few who truly know who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what will you say of him? Will you follow the Pharisees and the Sadducees in demanding for a sign? Or will you receive the testimony as it's been given in the scriptures and, and, and confess that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God? Now, we're going to look at this passage under two headings. Uh, there is, uh, very simply, the, the demand for the sign from the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 1. And, and then there is the response that Christ gives in verses 2 through 4. So there is the, the, the demand for a sign and then Christ's response. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is, is showing us here is that he, uh, uh, contrary to the demands that others might make of him, uh, it is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Lord and he will choose to give uh, whatever sign he sees fit. Uh, to give to any person, and he requires that what he gives to be the thing that is received, and that it is to be the thing that is to be understood as sufficient. Now, uh, we'll look then first at verse 1 and uh, this particular demand for a sign. The first thing to note about verse 1 is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming together in order to make this demand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the first time that this happens in Matthew's gospel, and it is significant. And the reason this is significant is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually deeply opposed to each other. So th th this, would, th this, is, this would not be two groups of people that you would normally see coming together in agreement with each other about opposing something else. These, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had fundamental disagreements. And you can even see in some places in, in the New Testament where um, you know, the Apostle Paul, for instance, will actually play on these disagreements. You know, he's, he's arrested and he's, he's in, a, in a Roman, he's being held uh, in custody by a Roman uh, centurion or Roman, uh, Roman, Roman general, I should say. And, and you know, then this, this, these people want to see, you know, what, why are these things uh, coming against Paul? What, what are the accusations? What, what's the thing that he's done? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there. And Paul, knowing that there's these great disagreements, he says, well, I'm here because of uh, you know, the hope of the resurrection. And that immediately sets these two groups to, to uh, be at war with each other. They're, they immediately start fighting with each other. And the reason is because uh, they had deep disagreements about these things. It was, it was not a normal thing for these two groups to come together. So just an example of some of these things that, that they don't believe in, uh, that they don't believe, uh, that they don't agree on. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Uh, the Pharisees believed in, in like a, a spiritual spiritual beings beyond the things that could be seen, like angels. The Sadducees did not. Uh, the Pharisees had constructed this enormous system of traditions uh, that were, you know, the traditions of the elders, as, as it's called in the New Testament. And uh, they would require people to obey these things. The Sadducees rejected all of the traditions, and they even said that the only really authoritative book was the books of Moses. So they even, they would, they would, they cut out even parts of the things that were actually scripture. And the Pharisees had added an enormous amount of things that were on top of all of the scriptures. 
So you, you can imagine that the, these sorts of disagreements, they are fundamental things. Even further, the, uh, the, there was a difference with, with regard to the disposition towards uh, Greek culture. There was a difference with regard to uh, uh, you know, the political solution to the problem of Israel with regard to interactions with the Romans. Uh, all of these things show that these two groups of people would not normally come together to oppose another group. They are actually the ones that are typically warring uh, one with another. And the reason this is significant and the reason why it's worth pointing out is because this illustrates a general principle, which is that those who are outside of the faith, they are often opposed to each other. Uh, with regard to the world of unbelief, there is generally a lot of infighting. And we can say that this is actually something that comes as a result of the Tower of Babel. Uh, that once you're basically in the realm of unbelief, there's going to be confusion and there's going to be uh, fighting amongst, amongst themselves. Uh, and yet, also, the infighting will generally stop for the sake of mutual opposition to Christianity. That is actually the, the, the general principle of the way, a general principle uh, of the way in which unbelief works. Uh, with those who are without the truth, they are like those groping in the dark for light. And they will argue amongst themselves about what is right. They, they don't know which way to go. And so there's lots of different kinds of arguments that can be made. But the one thing that they both agree on is that they cannot follow those who have the light. They must remain in the darkness. And this is actually something that we're seeing today as well. Um, one of the, the, the probably the, the most um, zealous opposition to Christianity is coming from the LGBTQ movement today. Uh, but it, one thing that's important to note about this movement, as it's been called, is that the LGBTQ movement is not internally cohesive or coherent. Uh, historically, the L and the G do not get along together. They are actually opposed to each other. And even further, the T completely undermines the possibility of L and G even existing. So why, why is it that the LGBTQ is all together? Part of it is because they recognize that there must be a cohesion of that group when it comes to the opposition to what the Bible teaches about marriage and about sexuality. And so they will fight amongst themselves until the point when they have to fight against those who believe the scriptures. And that is what we see is happening today. Uh, another example of this would be with, with feminism. Feminism is also diametrically opposed to, opposed to transgenderism. Uh, they, they, they completely undermines each other. And yet, uh, and yet uh, feminists will often be on the side of, of transgenders and opposing uh, Christianity even further. Uh, even groups that appear to be completely at odds with each other, like uh, feminists and Muslims will sometimes join together to oppose Christianity. And, you know, the way in which feminists view women versus the way in which Muslims, Muslims view women could not be more diametrically opposed. It cannot be further opposed. And yet, and yet, uh, there can be, at times, a, a brief alliance for the sake of mutual opposition uh, to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we are seeing here in this particular text. The, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees are willing to lay down their weapons in order to oppose Jesus. And such is the way it was then. And such is the way it is in every age because there is nothing new under the sun. This is ultimately a working out of what is said in Genesis chapter 3, 14, where in particular in, in uh, verse 15, uh, where uh, God curses the serpent, causes him to walk, uh, to, uh, to slither on the ground and eat dust. And then also he then 
puts enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That there may be fighting within the seed of the serpent, but ultimately the seed of the serpent will always, at its most fundamental uh, disposition, it will always be opposed to the seed of the woman. And that is the way it is, and that is the way it, uh, it was here for the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 16. Now, uh, what are the Pharisees and Sadducees coming together to do? Well, the answer is given. They are coming, testing him, and asking that he would show them a sign uh, from heaven. So again, their, their interests are rarely aligned, and yet here they, they both agree that Christ must be discredited, and the way in which they propose to do this is by asking for a sign. Now, why, why would they request a sign? Why, why is it the case that the unbeliever will, will often make this particular request of Christians, and why is it being requested of the Lord Jesus Christ here? The answer is because the request for a sign gives the skeptic the appearance of being objective and a lover of truth. That is what it does. If, if I can couch my unbelief in the, the position that there just has not been enough evidence shown to me, but then the, 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 the implication is that if there were evidence, then I would believe. That, that is the thing that is being done. And therefore, there can be uh, intellectual reasons for unbelief rather than heart reasons for unbelief, which is something that would involve uh, the, the skeptic having to recognize his own sins. And so he demands a sign saying, you know, listen, I'm even a good person. I'm, I'm even willing to follow you. You just got to show me. And if you show me, I'm, I'm a reasonable person. I'm very fair. I will weigh the evidence. And if you can show me based on the evidence, then I will, in fact, uh, believe. The, 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 the point is the, that the person is trying to convince himself that he is a lover of truth and yet still be able to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the problem with this is that the person making this claim is not nearly as unbiased or as objective as he claims. And this would be the, 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 the thing which uh, we would need to push back on. Uh, we would ask the question, is the person making this claim truly as unbiased and objective as he says he is? Is the person really willing to change the mind? Uh, the unbeliever is skeptical of faith. Um, we, however, ought to be equally skeptical of the unbeliever and his claim to objectivity. Uh, one commentator uh, notes uh, Voltaire, who was a skeptic in his own day, where in a moment of real honesty, he casts off the mask of objectivity and he is recorded as saying, this is his words, uh, Voltaire's words, even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. And that is actually the real disposition of, of the unbelieving skeptic. That it, th those who are antagonistic to the faith, who demand, God must provide me a sign on my terms if I am to believe. The reality is, is that if the sign were given, it would simply be dismissed. As there have been throughout the history of redemptive history, there have been many signs that have been given, and they have been dismissed. Uh, that, is, that, that, is the, that is the true disposition of the unbeliever. Now, is there a way... Is there a way that we can know that this is, in fact, the disposition of the unbeliever? So I, I'm saying that it's not really an honest request. Uh, is, there, is there a way that we can know that this is, in fact, what is happening with the Pharisees and the Sadducees here? 
And the answer is yes. Um, and the reason we know this is the case in Matthew's gospel is because there were many signs that were given. It's not just that Voltaire is hypothetically saying, you know, if I were to see a miracle, I would just, I wouldn't believe my eyes. I just, I would say like, you know, there must be a problem with my eyes and therefore I will, you know, my senses have a problem. Therefore, uh, the, the, it's still not enough. But you have to keep in mind the Pharisees and the Sadducees had seen signs. It's not, they're, they're demanding a sign after they had already seen many things. Uh, they, they had at least heard of the leper being cleansed. Christ had told the leper, go show yourself to the priests as a testimony to them of what's happened. How could you, as someone who's been a leper for so long, how could you have been cleansed? And you can tell them, the Lord Jesus Christ laid his hands on me and now I'm cleansed. He touched me. He did not contract my uncleanness, but he was able to give me purity. What does that say about him? The answer would have been very clear. He's the Messiah. That, that would have been the answer that is given. That is a sign that shows who the Lord Jesus Christ is. You think of, of the Pharisees are directly said to have witnessed uh, the, the, uh, the man who was paralyzed be healed on the spot. They even understood that Jesus was claiming to be God when he said that he had forgiven the man's sins. And he says, as, as a sign to you that you might know, I'm doing this sign that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. That's, is, is that not a sign? Does that not prove who the Lord Jesus Christ is? Uh, you think of even, even another instant is, is actually highly significant in terms of this particular context. Uh, Christ had cast out many demons. We're actually told multiple times in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, multiple times, even, even before this passage, they had seen Christ cast out demons and had more than one time ascribed the casting out of demons to Satan. So the idea is that, that they, they, they're, they're witnessing a person who is demon-possessed. They see the demon cast out, and rather than say, well, this is clearly evidence that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, they say, no, 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 it's actually because he's doing this by the hand of Satan. And so this, is, this doesn't count as evidence. And then, uh, what's even more significant with regard to Matthew chapter 12, uh, they, they accuse Christ of this, and then in that context, they ask for a sign. This is not even the first time they've asked for a sign. They asked for a sign in Matthew chapter 12 after they witnessed a demon come out of a man. They, they witnessed Christ excise a demon and then they say, what sign do you give to us that we might know that you really are the one that you say that you are? And what Christ says then is the same thing he says here. I'm not going to give you any sign. If you will not receive these, you have none. You have none. You are obligated to receive the things that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to you. And what he has given to you, he declares to be sufficient. He declares to be sufficient. And so when the Pharisees are requesting this sign, what we have to recognize is it is not honest. It is not honest. And there is no obligation that the Christian has or Christ has to say, well, yeah, yeah you know, it's at least valid what you're saying. And you know, maybe you should consider this or that sign. What Christ says is, you don't get any. You don't get any. If you won't receive this, you will not have even a single sign. You are not the Lord of Christ. He is the one who is the Lord. He is the one who demands that you receive the things that he has given as they have been given. And if you were to ask then, well, how do we know that this is the case for those who demand a sign today? Uh, it is, of course, true that the same sorts of signs and wonders are not done today as they were uh, done then. We don't uh, have, uh, um, you know, Christ bodily present with us, uh, raising people from the dead and 
commanding uh, people, paralyzed people to pick up their beds and walk. And so what is it then that God has given to us that we are required to receive as evidence of, of him existing and of uh, what he has done for us in his son? The first thing I'd say with regard to his existence is uh, the heavens. The scriptures declare uh, and teach us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that this existence, that God's existence is so clear on this basis that every single person on this earth is without excuse. If God does nothing else for you and gives you no other signs, he, he will on the last day judge you. And when you, if an unbeliever were to say, you know, God, you did not give me enough for, to believe in you, God will say, yes, I gave you plenty. I gave you all of creation, everything testified that I existed. And actually, you knew it. That's actually what, what Paul is saying in Romans 1. I gave it to you, you received it, and then you rejected it. And even you can see today that the, the staunchest of all atheists in moments of honesty, they will in fact admit, they do admit that, the, that when they look at the glory of the heavens, it is very compelling for them to believe that God exists. And then they will, some, they will say something like, you know, but we know better now. There's, there's some other explanation that we have. It, it may appear that this teaches that God exists, but, but actually we know better. And this is an unwillingness to receive what God has given. The second thing I'd say is that man himself has been made in God's image, which means that, if, that the skeptic himself is the clearest evidence that God has given of his existence, such that a person actually has to deny himself in order to deny God. Uh, that, that is, and, and that's what you see. When, when you see those who deny uh, God, you see also a corresponding devaluing of human life that is, that is contrary to reason. And the reason is because uh, with the, the only real way to ground a, the, the value of human life in, in terms of uh, something that is true and a, a strong and solid foundation is by recognizing that a person is made in the image of God. And once, there is, once you deny that there is a God, then there can be no person made in the image of God and therefore human life is no different from the life of a bee, the life of an ant, or, or the life of any other such thing. There is no distinction between that and that ends up being the conclusion that must be given. The only way to deny God is to deny oneself. But third, third, even more particularly with regard to the gospel, uh, we do not have, uh, again, the same sort of signs that have been given and yet, there is much evidence in terms of the changed lives that we see from the power of the gospel. Uh, if you know, I would ask, you know, where else would you see the power of sin broken and lives changed? Uh, my pastor back in Greenville would, would uh, speak about, of an example of, of a, a person, a Christian, who was going to debate an atheist. And uh, I, think, I, think, I think the way the story goes is that he actually denied, he, he actually denied the request. And what he said was, um, you know, you, you, uh, I, I'll, I will debate you when you can provide for me one person who is, who's had his life changed for the better because he uh, gave up his Christianity for atheism. And the point is, is that um, there is evidence of a change of life with regard to the power of the gospel, such that sins, the chains of the devil, are broken in people's lives. And this cannot be explained by just, you know, mere um, you know, mere, you know, ideological changes or that sort of thing. There is actually a real power that is happening. An example of this too would be uh, John Payton, uh, who's a 19th century Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides. Uh, he was a missionary to uh, the, the New Hebrides where there were, um, they were, they were, an un they were basically an, an unapproached tribe of people on islands and they were cannibals. So he's going to an island where there are cannibals 
And, um, you know, there are various people in his company that die. Uh, he's preaching the gospel. Eventually, one person is converted, and he, he writes uh, back to those who, who were in, uh, in, in Scotland and in the, in, in the UK in general and says, you know, if, for those who would deny the power of the gospel, um, if you were to spend 15 minutes with this man who was previously a cannibal, and yet you can see him in his right mind worshiping God, the most gentle person you would ever meet, nobody would be able to deny the power of the gospel. It's, it's not a normal thing that can happen. It is, it is evidence that God truly has changed the nature of a person. It, God has truly changed the nature of a, of a person. And there are myriads and myriads of examples of this particular thing. And so God has given this. He's given even other things we could say. We could talk about the, the, the glory of the word of God, which so perfectly uh, diagnoses the heart of man and reveals the, the truth of who God is. Uh, there's, there are a lot of things that we could say with regard to this, but the point is, is that God has given enough. God has given enough such that uh, there will be no excuse on the last day. It will never be a reasonable thing to say on the last day, God, you did not give me enough evidence. I demanded this sign of you. You refused to give it to me. Therefore, I am justified in my unbelief. That is never going to be the position that will, that never going to be the, the, the thing that will happen on the last day. That will always be seen to be foolish. God will be able to show that he gave you lots and that you did not receive it. That you actually even knew that this was evidence of his existence and that you should have believed and that you still turned away from it. That is going to be the, the testimony that is going to be given to every person on the last day. And therefore, we come now to Christ's response. How does Christ uh, respond to these things? When the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they do not honestly request a sign, having re request a sign even after they saw demons being cast out by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Christ does not even, interestingly, does not even point to these other signs. You'll notice, even though he's done all these things before them, and just, you know, you, you, you can imagine someone easily saying, do not these things teach about who I am? Uh, he actually kind of skips over that line of reasoning and begins to, to give them a, a metaphor about the interpretation of the skies. So what he says is in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3, he says that there is an ability that, you know, you have the ability uh, to understand the signs as you look to the heavens. So the idea would be, you know, if you, uh, in this particular part of the world, if you looked and you saw the sky being red at a certain point, you'd be able to predict to some degree of accuracy the weather. And uh, if you are able to do that sort of thing, then as he says at the end of verse 3, uh, then uh, you really should be able to understand what's going on now. That is to say, implicitly, you should be able to understand the significance of all that Christ is doing. If you see that Christ is able to heal 5,000 miraculously, to heal a paralyzed man, cast out the demons, you ought also to be able to recognize what is happening. You, you understand how to view the skies, but you do not yet understand how to interpret the signs of the times. Uh, another example of this would be um, just the, the unwillingness to receive uh, signs. Uh, probably the clearest is uh, John chapter 11, uh, where Christ raises Lazarus from the dead. There are many who come and they report to the Pharisees that Christ has just raised a man from the dead. And rather than say, well, you know, we, we could have denied it at other points, but now you know, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. What else are we going to do? They actually are only concerned about the political implications of people now believing that, that Jesus is the Lord. 
And they say, you know, well, now the Romans are going to come and they're going to attack us if, if everyone follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's their solution? Their solution is to try to kill Lazarus. Rather than receive the sign, they say, well, we would, we would actually rather uh, kill Lazarus. And you know, such, I would say, is the honest objectivity of those uh, who seek uh, a sign. Uh, the point is that there is an obligation to receive the things that Christ has given. And, and you, you could imagine what Christ would say to us today uh, in terms of the knowledge that we have. So what he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, you know, you look at the, at the, the weather and you can, you can figure it out based on certain clues and context. But think about what Christ would say to us today. You know, you, you, know, you understand how to predict the weather to within a single degree all over the planet. You understand how to put satellites into space. You can communicate with others via the internet on the other side of the earth. You're able to split the atom, travel hundreds of miles per hour through the sky, and yet you cannot recognize the significance of the gospel. If you are able to understand so much and yet fail at this point, it is, it is evidence of unbelief that, that is just not justified. It is not justified. Notice then the conclusion that he gives in verse 4. It is, in fact, a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. It is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Uh, notice the, the thing that the Pharisees and Sadducees want is they want their unbelief to be couched in, in intellectual objectivity. Intellectual ob objectivity. Christ cuts right through that and he says it's not actually about intellectual ob objectivity. It is a matter of the heart. The request for a sign is a revelation of the heart, and it is a wicked thing to ask for a sign in the way that you are asking for a sign. Even further, he calls it an adulterous thing. Now, why, why does he call it adulterous? Uh, the idea is that it is unfaithfulness to God. The, you, you have to remember the Pharisees were in covenant relationship with God, and therefore they were part of the people that could be legitimately called the bride of God. They were his bride. And what Christ is saying is that the, that the seeking out of a sign is actually adultery against God. Uh, it would be like a wife who withholds love from her husband until a series of demands are met. A wife who says, I will, I will not give you anything until you meet my demands with regard to love. And that, that's what's happening here. Uh, I'm perfectly willing to love you, God but I will give you nothing until you meet my demands. And my demand is a sign. Give me a sign and I'll give it to you. And what Christ is saying is, is that that is adultery. It is adultery against God. It is unfaithfulness to him. And then he says again, no sign will be given. No sign will be given. As I said, this is very interesting language in, in light of the fact that many signs had been given. Uh, the, point, the point though, the reason for this sort of language is that Christ is making it clear that he will never give a, a, a sign on command because he is the Lord. He is the Lord. He, he will not ungod himself for the sake of submitting to such a request. It, it, the, the unbelieving skeptic gets this exactly backwards. He, he demands that God give him a sign or else he will withhold his unbelief. The, the level of the, the, the positions of authority are reversed. God is the one who makes the demand. He's the one who demands. You must receive what I have given to you or else I will judge you. I, I will not meet your demands of me. I am making demands of you and you must meet those. That is what God is saying. Christ says, even after he's doing all these, all these signs, 
I am not going to give you a single sign, a single sign on upon request. It's not going to be given to you. Now, one of the things this is, this is uh, uh, it teaches us is that uh, first, as the Apostle Paul teaches, God cannot be mocked. He will not acquiesce to a sinful request for a sign. But also, there is a, a really weighty implication, which is that uh, for those who refuse to come to Christ and who are, um, there are some who you know, are not as obstinately skeptical and who are antagonistic, but for those who are more in that camp with regard to antagonism, the point is that God often will remove opportunities for turning to Him from people who persist in that state. God will remove things. You say, like, if you're not going to receive this, I'm just not going to give you anything. And then you can think that you're justified in your unbelief, but you will continue in that unbelief and then face the consequences. That, that is, that is the, the implicit threat that is coming in, in Matthew chapter 16. If, if you're going to make this demand in this way, with this heart, I am not going to give you anything. You, you will be left in your unbelief. And you can, you can simply go the way that you've chosen with all the implications of that. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here. Now, you'll notice the one exception to this that he gives in verse 4 is that there will be one sign that is given, which is the sign of Jonah. Now, this is a very clear reference to the resurrection from the dead, and this is to be the greatest sign, and it is even more than a sign because it is, in fact, an act of redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and uh, this is the thing that uh, settles everything with regard to who he is. Uh, uh, Paul in Romans 1 will say that, uh, God has declared him to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, God has made this declaration. God has vindicated his son against everyone who would speak otherwise by raising him uh, from the dead. It is, uh, you could say, it, the sign above all signs and it is all, the capstone of all of them. And the point is that if this sign will not be received, then no others can be given. If, if you will not receive the sign of the resurrection from the dead, then, uh, then you will not receive anything and very sadly, as we think about what will happen in the end of Matthew's gospel, this is actually exactly what happens. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are confronted with incontrovertible evidence that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And even there, they've received now the sign of Jonah. And what do they say? They say, they pay off the guards. They pay off the guards. And they say, you, you just say that they stole the body in the, in the night. They, they are unwilling to receive even the sign of the resurrection from the dead. And sadly, uh, many people today, though completely implausible, will use the exact same sorts of arguments in order to deny the sign of Jonah that has been given for the sake of the faith of everyone. Everyone is required to believe on the basis of this sign of Jonah that Christ was raised from the dead. And the same sorts of arguments for unbelief that the Pharisees and the Sadducees gave are the same arguments that are given today. Uh, and in this way, many people show themselves to be like Voltaire, whether they would admit it or not, that they would rather not believe their own senses rather than to receive a sign from heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There are many kinds of different responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some who will try to be respectful and yet be unbelieving. There are some who even benefit from the ministry of the word and yet be unwilling to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and follow. And there are some who are antagonistic and who are scoffers, who ask for a sign. And yet there are also some who will believe. There will be some always who will believe. 
There is nothing new under the sun. There will always be many who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. There will, be, there will always be those who try to cloak their opposition in a demand for a sign in order to appear objective and while unbelieving yet a lover of the truth. But the question is, what will you do? What will you do? Will you receive humbly the things that God has given and recognize that what he has given to you is enough for the establishment of faith, that it is enough such that you can make the confession that Peter makes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May God grant you the grace uh, so to profess uh, Christ as Peter has done so many years ago. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, we, we recognize these are hard words and that the Lord Jesus Christ is, uh, uh, he deals so severely with those who are the religious leaders of the day, uh, those who would uh, set themselves in obstinate opposition to him. Uh, Lord, we, we do pray that you would humble our hearts. We, we do recognize that there will always be those who are so hardened. Um, and Lord, we, we further recognize that without your grace, there we would be as well, uh, to our great shame. Uh, Lord, please humble us, please humble us, that we would receive everything from, from your word and not make excuses for anything, that we would simply submit to you in all things, that we would uh, simply uh, cling to you, that we would receive even the hard words that are said in the scriptures, and that we would receive them out of love for you. Lord, we pray that you would grant this to us. We, we, we know that if, if you had not been merciful to us, that, that we, we would be hardened as well. Uh, Lord, grant us to us an, an ever-softening heart uh, and reveal to us where, where we have gone astray and where we have failed to receive your word as such. Uh, for we do ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. 
May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.